This is Mission.org. This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. Super excited to have Stephanie Dobbs-Brown, the Chief Marketing Officer at the Intercontinental Exchange, which also, by the way, owns the New York Stock Exchange. Now, before I get into this, Stephanie, I want to just quickly, let's talk about like who this amazing human is, right? Because if you look at the the path of her career, someone who who essentially started out in sales, in media, and has really, for the past 20 plus years, worked her way up through some really amazing brands, started at CBS, spent a couple of years at PR Newswire, uh, five, over five years at Thomson Reuters, ended up at the Dow Jones for four years, and really started getting into marketing leadership there and even before. And now, you know, five years plus at ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, which is a Fortune 500 company. I mean, I looked it up. You guys are Fortune 384, I believe, at, mm-hmm. at last count, which is amazing. I mean, this is a company that's doing amazing things. But Stephanie... So pumped to have you on the show, and I'm excited to get into it. Welcome. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to get into it. I want to ask a really easy question I'm just curious about for you, and that is like, what kind of music are you, what's in your Spotify playlist? Like, what are you jamming to right now these days? Yeah, oh my goodness. It's such a random mix. I'll give you my Subway playlist because that's always sort of the most random. Okay. It's a mix of what I would say 90s hip hop. Because who doesn't have 90s hip hop? Love it. Um, I, I I fall. You can age me pretty quickly when I fall into the camp of I thought this year had the best Super Bowl performance ever. <laughs> you yeah. country. I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. Oh. Um, it, it sort of it sort of just depends on the day, but it's usually a mix of country, Billy Joel, hip hop. Like I said, a really ran- a little bit of pop, random eclectic group. Okay. Uh, well, we sh- we share that. I feel like if I stumbled upon your playlist, you, you said 90s hip hop. You had me at 90s hip hop. So <laughs> you, you, you got me. You got me. Um, that's fantastic. For our audience, for those who aren't really super familiar with, with, with ICE and kind of your role, would you please describe the Intercontinental Exchange and then what you do there? Yeah, sure. So the Intercontinental Exchange, uh, or we, we call ourselves ICE, and it's really what most of the most of the market and who knows us call us. So I'll say ICE from here on out. We're an integrated data and technology company. And so we're about 22 years old. And within our portfolio, our, and what we're probably most known for is actually we're an exchange operator. 
And so within our exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange happens to be one of them. But we also have a large fixed income and data services business, as well as a mortgage technology business. And so when you think about the company as a whole, it really is this fintech company that got its start early days in, uh, like I said, in exchanges. And then through acquisitions, we've made over 50 acquisitions uh, in 20, you know, a little over 20 years, have really grown into um, this data and technology company. For me, it was like a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar brand that I hadn't known a lot about, right? I wasn't familiar, super familiar with ICE. And I'm sure there's folks that are and, and maybe are not as well. I also know that there's a pretty big thing happening right now there, which is you're really leading up this rebrand of ICE. And I want to get into that right away because this is a really interesting rebrand that's kind of been in process. And so can you kind of get, get, us, get us into that a little bit? What brought you into that conversation? What brought about the need for ICE's rebrand? For us, a couple of years ago, we started on this path of, you know, we have this organization. If you're in the space, if you're in the, you know, if you're a trader, you tend to know what we do. But if you're outside of that, there really has been sort of a, a fairly low recognition of who we are and what we do. And we saw that as a big opportunity because it had, we were finding challenges in terms of having to explain who we are, what we do. It lengthens the sales process. It becomes challenging for recruitment purposes. And so we started down this path uh, in 2020, actually, during the pandemic of how do we really sort of reintroduce ICE to the marketplace, number one. And number two, how do we bring together all of these different acquisitions, which we've done an excellent job of in terms of technology, in terms of culture, but in terms of, of the brand understanding in the marketplace, there was some work to do around bringing all of these together. And so we started with a lot of research and really just getting a baseline of how does the market perceive us. We have different types of customers, depending on what part of the business we're talking about, different demographics, different, uh, different parts of the financial markets. And so we really just did a lot of research to understand how the market views us. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that we were debating is our formal name, if you will, is Intercontinental Exchange. And so we were debating, do people know that? Do we need to really lean in and double down on explaining the name? And actually, what we found is 80% of our brand awareness was actually tied to ICE, the three letters, and our logo. And we said, you know what? Rather than trying to change what people already call us, let's really lean into ICE, which is what we would call ourselves colloquially and what a lot of traders might call us who have worked with us for a while. And we said, let's, let's really lean into that, right? We've got brand equity already. And out of that was really this, this kind of born initiative around raising awareness for the business, explaining and and telling our story. And it's really resulted in where we are now in 2022, where we've rolled out our first commercial, we rolled out our first global campaign, we redesigned the New York Stock Exchange. And what we've been saying from the beginning is that this is really an ongoing journey and you know, really in earnest for about three years. And so we're two years into that this three-year initiative. And I'm just really excited about it and really, really proud of the work we've put into market. I mean, it's this this rebrand is a multifaceted campaign. I mean, you talked about the 60 second TV spot. I mean, you guys are leveraging influencers, behind the scenes yeah. content, social media, like you're bringing together a lot of things to help these new audiences learn about ICE, you know, which I love. You know, I, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about like telling the story. Like, was it was there major shifts in how you started telling the story? Were you using different technology to tell the story? What was the, yeah, distill that a little bit for us. The answer is yes, there was a major shift in how, how we wanted to tell the story. And because what we were finding is 
Look, we're a complex organization in a fairly complex marketplace, right? That, that's just the reality of, of where we are. And so how do we simplify the story and make it easy for people to understand who we are and what we do and relate to it a little bit more? And why that was important is because for different parts of the business that we're talking about, the New York Stock Exchange is a really good example, right? Like the New York Stock Exchange lives in people's minds. You sort of grow up with a preconceived notion of what that exchange is. And so for us, it was about not only telling our story to those that might be trading on our platforms, but also those who might be up and coming entrepreneurs who might one day want to access capital in the public marketplace. Our mortgage business, you know, ultimately, you know, is talking about the dream of home ownership and putting that into people's hands. And so it was really a diverse, it's a, a diverse audience on who we're trying to reach, where we made a really big shift in our messaging was simplifying it. So just simplify the message, the story, and the consistent thread as we were doing a lot of research and, and really a deep understanding of the business was that regardless of what part of the business you were talking about, we create opportunity for people. So whether you're talking about hedging within our exchanges and trading, whether you're talking about accessing capital, like I said, for the New York Stock Exchange, whether you're talking about someone's first home, all of that is an opportunity that's rooted in the global financial marketplace. And so that's where we came up with the, the tagline of connecting people to opportunity and ICE make the connection. Beyond that, we said, okay, who can help us tell this story? If we want to, you know, how do we simplify it? You know, we always say, what, how would you explain what ICE does to your grandmother? And what we were finding is actually somebody outside of ICE can sometimes do a really good job of explaining what we do because they, they explain it really simply, right? They're not thinking about mm -hmm. the business and all the nuance of it and what we do. And so that's where we came up with the concept of using influencers or third parties to help us tell that story. And it's been wildly successful in helping us to infiltrate people's minds in a way that maybe we weren't able to before. How do you balance this? Because you, I think you said it really interesting. I mean, because like you, you're balancing this, you know, kind of inside baseball, right? Like you're inside of this you know, very big organization. You're supporting a lot of things. You're making a global impact. There's a lot of things happening inside, a lot of complexity. And then you can, you can oftentimes, we've seen this happen where brands, you know, they'll often, they'll often launch their own podcasts or shows and initiatives where if you don't work at the company or work like or affiliated with them, it's it's inside baseball. You know, like, you know, it's like well, I don't understand the language, I don't understand the, mm -hmm. the tone. How do you balance that with like telling the story in a way that's going to resonate with a new marketplace, but also, you know, you're also on the inside of it. There's a lot of influence, there's a lot of trust and rapport. How do you kind of toe the line there? So our approach has been, and I'll explain this, but it's almost been to separate brand and marketing. Mm. And so we have a highly educated audience tends to be really educated. Our subject matter is pretty wonky. It's pretty in the details. And the reality is our audience, our customers want that. They want to get into the details. You couldn't write a, a white paper with too many details or long enough. We find that our audience really, really does. Our, our, most of our customers really do want that level of detail. And so what we said is, let's tell at the brand level, which of course, the audience of this podcast is going to appreciate the difference between brand and marketing. Like, at the brand level, we said, simplify it. Just simplify the heck out of the story. At that product level where we're really drilling in and thinking about content, we're thinking about lead generation, we're thinking about nurture, all of that is a lot more detailed. It's a lot more in the weeds. And it gives us a little bit of license to do both. And we've, we've found that that's actually been really successful in terms of helping us get that story across. How do you balance the, the kind of 
Because you have you have access to a lot of resources and support. You work with agency partners and creatives outside of the business. You also have your own in, inside marketing folks, I'm sure. And I'm always curious to kind of ask marketing leaders like yourself, like how, you know, again, the balance of leveraging outside creative help and support and also bringing it in-house and having it in-house and like balancing that. And over your career, you've kind of been able to see all sides of that. But what's your approach now today? Do you rely heavily on outside help? Do you believe, hey, look, I want to build, I want creatives inside. I want the utility marketers inside. How do you look at that relationship? It's something that we at ICE, we've, we talk about all the time as a, as a management team. And what we've ultimately decided together is there are some things that we are great at. We're great at technology. We're great at infrastructure. We're great at the operations. We're great at strategy around the marketing strategy and as an organization, really good at strategy. And then there's some things that we find just makes more sense to outsource that other people are going to be better. You know, media is a really good example creative, like big idea thinking. So we're a pretty creative marketing team, but some of those big ideas, big concepts, something like the commercial that we did, some of those bigger ad campaigns, we'll outsource those. Um, And our philosophy has been, look, go where other experts are. And also it gives us a lot more flexibility to evolve and change as our needs change in a way that I think we would be restricted if we work to build all of that in-house and uh, not able to kind of evolve with the times. And I think 2022, there's so many things that you have to react to. I don't actually know it in-house as great as our in-house team is, which I'm beyond proud of. I don't know if we, if it's realistic for us to be able to react to those things in a way that, that an out, you know, outsourcing could. Mm. There's a lot of talk these days around like CDP, like customer data platforms and things like that. Do you get into that space? And what is that, what does kind of the CDP world mean to you as a marketing leader now? I think it's an important one. We spend a lot of time talking about reporting and how we're thinking about customer data. For us, it's another good example of some of the some aspects of reporting and data we have in-house and some we outsource. I don't think we've figured out, I certainly haven't figured out, and I and I welcome those who are gonna listen to this podcast who have who have great ideas and have have cracked the code on this. I haven't quite cracked the code or us as a team on what's the best way to kind of handle that role. And so I think a mix of of internal and external is often the way to get the, the most insight for what we're looking for. Along that line. And just in terms of like like real-time insight, real-time data, is that something you're exploring? Is that something you're leveraging with technology now where you're getting better real-time data from your customers or from your prospects or from folks that are engaging with your brand? Yes and no, which is, I was sort of kind of reacting a little bit to that. Yes and no. We don't need real-time in the way that a consumer organization would need. And actually, we were looking at data on a monthly basis. And with the exception of the funnel, of looking at our lead funnel, everything else we moved to quarterly, just because we were finding that even on a monthly basis, we weren't seeing enough movement. And there was, you know, there's so much time for us and others to go in and build those reports and, and, and not just build them, but analyze them. So you actually have the insights you want that we moved that to quarterly. And I think that that's been a really, I think that's been a really good move. I think there's certain things like social that yes, being able to react more in real time is, is important, but on some of these bigger initiatives that we're looking to do, time has been really helpful for us to get the insight that we want and not just end up looking at a bunch of just data. Another topic I think that's really interesting that seems to be top of mind for a lot of marketing leaders and just, I think, big brands in general is this, this idea of employee experience. And you, you know, we always talk about a customer experience and, of course, doubling down on the customer experience, and that's always important. And 
we're in 2022 where a lot of you know the way people are working the you know the virtual the room you know in the office out of the office the way cultures are being designed and built now the way you as a as a marketing leader have to recruit and hire and keep people and keep their experience high like what are just your thoughts and just i would just anecdotally love to hear about how you view the employee experience now and how yeah. important that is or how much you do or don't double down on that. Yeah, I don't think you can understate the importance of the employee experience. And I think one of the things that I love about marketing, and I've said this throughout my career, is the influence that marketing can have on the culture of a company. Because you can't, you can't just market to customers, right? As humans, we're exposed to everything. And I think employees, to me, are the, mo- are the most exciting part of a company because they're your salespeople, they're your advocates, they're your ambassadors, they're your references and your referrals. And I just don't think you can have one without the other. I think it's impossible to separate customers and employees. Now, I think the tactics that you use, right, are different, of course, you know, and the approach, the strategy you might take is is different. But in my opinion, they go hand in hand. And I think especially now in kind of this new world that we're living in, where there's such a blurred line is that employee experience has to be top of mind when you're thinking about it because you just, you simply can't talk to a customer in isolation. Mm. Can you take us a layer deeper of like some of the things you're doing maybe with your team or if, if anything shifted in the way that kind of you creating space for your team and, and the folks that are working with you and collaborating with you, does it look different these days? What are some things you're, you found work really well to kind of enhance yeah. and enhance the culture of, of ICE? So I'll I'll give you a few examples. So one is, and I said this at the top of the call when I started talking about the brand work, is part of a lot of this initiative was around telling people our why and that we connect people to opportunity. And so much of that is, I think, can sometimes get lost in the day-to-day, especially we're a big company. We have a lot of employees. We have 10,000, you know, roughly about 10,000 employees. And I think ultimately, and I put myself in in this camp too, people want to generally want to feel like what they're doing matters, whether it's on a larger scale, whether it's on a localized scale, whether it's just in, in somebody's own, you know, sort of personal domain. I think that that's really important. And I don't think that that can be overlooked. And when we started talking about the role that we play and that why we connect people to opportunity and why that matters and why that's important, employees were, of course, a big part of how we were thinking about that messaging and how we tell that story. That's one piece of it. You know, another piece of it is in the same way that we think about that, you know, what we do to market to customers can impact the employee experience. It absolutely impacts recruitment too. And for us, that's been a really big focus, which is, you know, how do we tell the ICE story to candidates that might never have heard of us before? And so hopefully over the next few years, that time it takes to explain who we are and what we do shrinks considerably that's been a really big focus also on making sure that that we're also leading into into the recruitment efforts around all of this. Look, I think that there's some really interesting things that that our company and that our internal comms team has been doing around employee engagement and sharing around culture and what we're doing. I absolutely love working at ICE. I have said that from the very beginning and I think our culture is one that's incredibly exciting and one of the things that I'm always really proud of is the role that we play in the financial marketplace. We've done a lot of work around really sharing that culture and letting people 
get to share the work that they're doing with each other and what they're really proud of in terms of their work in the company and the markets and, and also bringing in their personal lives, which is so important that may not have been such a big focus a few years ago. What have you learned about hiring leaders and just like how you're evaluating and bringing on high performing leaders? I think in your role, clearly it's important to have that support around you so you can be at the top of your game as a, as a CMO. What's some of the things you're doing these days to really like, yeah, engage with high performing leaders? Is there something that you have? A, is there a process or an approach you have for, yeah, bringing on really high performing leaders or things you look for in high performing leaders? I look for a few things. One is I always, always, always look for culture fit. I think our team would probably say we probably spent a, a lot of time with the hiring process across the board, regardless of the ranks and making sure that it's both the right culture fit for ICE, of course, but the really the right culture fit for the marketing team. And so we have culture interviews as much as we have skills interviews that are just part of our process across the marketing organization. To me, I learned lessons early on in terms of culture fit and that never left me. The second is empathy. So I think it's really critical to have empathy as a leader and even just as a business professional. I mean, really as a human, having empathy, I think is important, especially as a marketer where you don't always get to just go in and say the directive and people will follow. A lot of times it's getting people on the journey and understanding what their point of view is, emotional or otherwise, I think is really helpful. And then of course, you know, what are the transferable skills that somebody has? But I also have put a variety of leaders in roles over, over the years where on paper, it didn't actually look like it was a logical fit, but because they had the right transferable skills and they had the empathy and they had the leadership skills and they had all the other, you know, the culture fit and all the other things were wildly successful in their roles. Wow. And I'm sure you've probably had some folks come across your, your world that maybe reminded you of you, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you have, you have a really interesting story in that, you know, you graduated from the University of Tennessee. By the way, if you don't know, Tennessee is doing horrible at football right now. Oh, um, stop it. Don't even. I thought you were going to let me relive the, the Bama game a, a couple weeks oh, ago. I'm so, uh, I'm so oh, riding high from that. So, so, so am I. I'm an, I'm an SEC guy as well. I went to LSU. And, um, oh, nice. Okay. And But I mean, Tennessee is just absolutely crushing the game right now. I mean, if you don't know about college football, you probably know Tennessee is undefeated and they, they look real good. So shout out to the Vols. Thank you. I'm very excited. It's been a long time. <laughs> the only time I don't like Tennessee is like if we play them. If we're playing them, then yeah. I got to root for my team. But I'm cheering for Tennessee all the way. And they're, man, they're looking good. You went to Tennessee. You graduated with a degree in journalism and public relations, kind of heading down that, down that road. I want to get into your path a bit because you had an interesting career path. You didn't set your sights on, I'm going to be a CMO one day. You didn't have that vision then. So walk us through kind of your career and like how the, take us through some of the high points and some of the things you got to do and how you got into marketing. Yeah, sure. I graduated from the University of Tennessee and I'll share this story because I actually think it's it, in hindsight is reflected in this approach had been reflected throughout my career. I couldn't decide what part of, I knew I wanted to be in the school of communications. I couldn't decide what part. So I dabbled a little bit in marketing. I dabbled a little bit in advertising and PR. I, you know, I, I sort of covered the whole spectrum on camera, off camera. I mean, I tried it all. And I really kind of pieced together the elements that I really loved. You know, I loved the psychology classes in marketing and the business classes in marketing. I loved a lot of the advertising classes, you know. And so when I graduated, I was really open to, to just kind of, I wanted to do something in kind of that marketing, advertising, communications world, but I was really open. And so I took a job selling ad sales at 
a CBS affiliate in Memphis during the week and was given an opportunity out of New York for the C- what was now it's now for the CBS morning show it was a CBS early show that on the weekends I could be a field producer. They used to do these bumpers in between commercials and I could go out and I could be a field producer for the CBS early show. And I thought, well, what the heck? Yeah, I'd love to do it. I'm, you know, I'm early 20s. I have no idea what, I'm, what I want to do with my life. Why not? And so I started doing that. And then I also found a person who had an editing company. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more about editing. You know, I was doing a lot of the field production work. And so I said, do you mind if I just come in on, you know, on the weekends that I'm not doing the early show and when I'm not working to just kind of shadow you and see it? I learned really early on editing is not for me. I did not. I think I lasted less than a month in shadowing just a few times. But what that did was it really set me on this trajectory of I could go down a couple different paths uh, in terms of marketing. I ultimately uh, decided that I really liked the sales side, but I wanted to stay in marketing and communications. So I took a job with PR Newswire and did that full time and, and decided I'm going to move off of the grind of the weekend and the weekday. And I did PR Newswire for a long time and absolutely loved it. I was a sales rep, but what I found was the parts that I really loved were actually talking to the heads of public relations, the heads of marketing around how they're marketing their businesses. And our CMO at the time said to me, you know, you'd be really good in marketing. Have you ever thought about that? And so she just kind of planted a seed. And then fast forward, when I moved to Thomson Reuters, there was an opportunity to launch a product that was targeting marketing and communications professionals. And I put together a job description I went to the person that was heading up the entire division and I said, let me take a run at this job. I had no idea really sort of what was entailed. I just, I created a job description that I thought could do the job. It was a little bit of marketing. It was a little bit of sales. It was a little bit of management. I got the job and that was really my first true step into kind of starting to make that transition into marketing. It was my first shot at at managing people. It was my first uh, opportunity to really market and think about the positioning of a product from the very beginning, and then also responsible for selling it. That was an experience that was really transformational in my career. And from there, I took on a role as head of brand and public relations strategy at Thomson Reuters before ultimately moving to Dow Jones and overseeing brand marketing and ad sales before moving to uh, oversee all of corporate marketing for Dow Jones before I made the, the move over to ICE. It's it's interesting to see that because you could have you could have stayed the kind of PR comms route, right? Like you're on paper, it looks like you could have gone that gone that way. And then you kind of came to an intersection where you kept the connection to to branding and and PR, but but went towards marketing and marketing leadership. And so and I and I think that's really interesting now because today we're seeing I'm seeing a lot of modern day marketing leaders like yourself that are really good at comms and marketing you're seeing a lot of companies like either one person's in charge of both where you had a C, a C level person in charge of comms and PR and a C level person in marketing we're seeing you know large brands combine that and so with your background in with PR and brand and i mean that's brilliant now fast forwarding to being a marketing leader which you didn't maybe know you were headed that way but that's exciting i heard you say on one podcast that you felt unqualified for certain tasks that you took on in the early stages of your career right imposter syndrome We've all had it. Is this a testament to the kind of fake it before you make it approach? I don't know if it's fake it before you make it as much as taking some calculated risks and and trusting yourself that you can do it. So, you know, I think that there's throughout my career, I've done both. I've taken some risks, right? Developing a 
job description and say, you know, let me, let me take a run at this. But I think you, you can't, you can't do that without a trust, a trust in your ability to get it done. And I think, I mean, look, there were times in my career, right. Where I had multiple jobs because I wanted to have multiple jobs. I wanted to expand my knowledge. I wanted, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that comes with that drive and ambition that I think sometimes can be looked down upon, I think also is an incredible quality of being able to try different things in your career and not always be so worried about failing. And so I think it's less about faking it before you make it and more about a trust in your abilities and and taking some calculated risks and saying yes, even if you're not totally sure of what you're saying yes to. Where did that come from for you? Because clearly, you know, I, I make up a story that either one of two things happened. One, you were told, you know, much younger in your career or in your life that like you couldn't do something. And so you went and did it anyway. Or two, you had a lot of encouragement around you. Maybe it was parents or peers or whatever that were like, Stephanie, go for it. What was it for you? I think it was both. Okay. So I grew, I grew up in a house that was very much supportive of, uh, you know, watching my own parents, my dad in particular, who really had a thriving career, worked really hard. And I think that there's a lot of observing that throughout what my, my childhood. But I think beyond that, I've been really, really blessed with having a strong support system around me of, you know, you can do this and, you know, oh, if you didn't do it and it wasn't as great as you want, talking through that and sort of understanding, you know, what worked and what didn't. And I think that comes from not just family, but I think, you know, for me, career specifically, I've, I have been surrounded by mentors and friends, professional friends, who I've also gotten to just experience them going through the ebbs and flows of their career and, and soaking that up a little bit and also feeling supported by them as well. You also have this relationship with failure that I think is really interesting too. I mean, clearly, especially, I mean, not knowing a lot of what you've done in your career, I know that based on what you're doing now, you have to have a really interesting relationship with failure, you know, where I think I could see a lot of leaders or up and coming leaders choosing to wait and not fail because they don't want to fail because it's the impact's too great, right? But you've had to lean into that in various ways. I'm curious about, were there like distinct lessons of failure? And like, if you think back and maybe it's more recent or maybe it's not, but just like where there were failures that at the time maybe seemed like a big L, but like really positioned you for something great. Is there like a a, a less, an early lesson failure that you're proud of, right? That like maybe didn't seem like the most exciting then, but, but obviously supported you later. I think some of that comes from the fact that I have had failures and have then also gone to the other, gotten to the other side of them and seen in hindsight, the success that, and success comes in many shapes and, you know, forms that, you know, jobs that I missed out on, whether, you know, I was going, you wanted to move to another company or whether I was looking for a promotion that I didn't get. And when you look back on hindsight, think, wow, that put me on a terrific path that I would have never been on otherwise. There's, you know, there are certain things, you know, even at ICE that I know that I raised my hand for and said, I, I can do this. And it didn't end up in, you know, in exactly in the way that I thought it was going to end up. But I think that on the other side of that, there's been, there's been great wins too. And sometimes there's not always even great wins. It's just, okay, you failed, but you didn't feel that much, you know, it wasn't that bad. And so you just kind of move on. And I think knowing that there had, for me personally, I haven't had so, I've never had such a bad repercussion of trying something and it not working out the way it has so that it hasn't deterred me from from continuing to take some risks. That's awesome. The responsibilities that you have now in your role to be just okay with failure and to kind of have a measurement of like, 
is it a big failure? Is it a little, you have your own personal way of looking at that. And I think that, yeah, it's beautiful to see that at the highest level to keep that relationship, you know, at the forefront. You're so right that failure, failure to somebody who's just starting their career is going to look and feel really different to somebody who's maybe 10 years or 20 years in their career. And I think as a leader, having perspective on that is really important. Years ago, there was somebody who was early on in their career and they were really upset about something that I found to be insignificant. I was not fussed by it, but they were really upset about it. And the reality is that at that level, at that place in in their career and where they were, they were paid to be really upset about that. And I was really happy by the fact that they took that accountability and the responsibility. But I think it's important as a leader to then also give somebody that space that they, you know, they can fail and it's okay, even if you know that it's not that big of a deal. And I think the other side is you have to put your money where your mouth is on that. And you can't just say you can fail and it's going to be okay. And then get really angry about it. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think, I hope that anybody on my team or who has ever worked with me would say that that's a culture that we really pride ourselves on, which is, you know, there's no bad ideas and give it a go. You know, you're not going to have to worry about something happening if, if it didn't work out necessarily the way that you wanted it to. Good distinction. You know, thinking about kind of multicultural marketing, right? I mean, you've said this, like, you know, marketing is an enabler of culture and also a creator of culture. I had Andrea Brimmer, CMO for Ally Bank on about three or four weeks ago. And she talked about this idea of like multicultural marketing. It can't live in a silo, especially these days, right? And how it needs to be really infused to, you know, the entire, you know, strategy. And so I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about multicultural marketing from your perspective, how you view it in this day and age. I I would completely agree with her. And I I think the days of let's just have a rep in Hong Kong or Singapore and another one in Germany or France or Brazil or that none of that matters anymore. And I think so much of that is because of social and digital and the way, you know, you get information in so many different ways in so many different places. And so I think that it's a balance of cultural nuance, regardless of what exactly, you know, there's, you, you can look at multiculture in so many different ways. So I think nuance is always really important and transparency is really important. So assume that everybody's going to see everything. And so how do you, no matter how targeted it's, your message is going to be. And so then how do you consider the important nuances around that? Another thing I'd love to just hear on is, you know, ICE recently became a sponsor of McLaren's Extreme E-Team, which I love this. It's an innovative new series featuring all electric off-road competition. I'm just a fan of that with male and female drivers behind the wheel, which is so cool. What about this and what about racing that you think makes a good connection for ICE? As we were looking at who we wanted to partner with, there were a number of considerations. One is what audiences are we trying to reach? And F1, when you think about ICE's core audience, the F1 audience in general, the racing audience is very, very similar. And so that was sort of a natural fit in terms of, you know, starting to think about racing. As we started to look at who we might want to partner with, with McLaren, we've been so impressed with what Zach and the team have been doing around a few things. One is data and technology. So in our commercial, Zach represents, loosely represents our data and technology for ICE. And that's because what they have done around data and technology has been really, really impressive and felt very authentic to us. And then the third thing that I would say is what, what, again, what Zach and the team have been able to do around really expanding people's expectations around racing and introducing so many different new and interesting facets for that sport. And obviously that's not just McLaren that's involved in that, 
But when they when they when they launched Extreme E again, that felt really authentic to us. We have a part of our business focuses around sustainable finance, and so how do we work with McLaren as a way again to kind of bring all of that together and that angle around ESG considerations specifically in racing, which hasn't always been a focus, was really really interesting to us. So there were a few reasons why we why we wanted to get into racing and, and partner with McLaren specifically. There, there's also something around um, CNBC's Mad Money. Is that also, a, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, the strategic partnership there? Yeah. Yeah. So we've had CNBC on the floor of the exchange for years. And one of the things that we just launched over the last few months is we moved Jim Cramer's Mad Money studio to the floor of the New York Stock oh. Exchange, which has been so exciting for us. It's been really exciting for Jim. It's been really exciting for CNBC and their guests. So again, that's another one of just looking at you know, looking at our audience, both partners for, you know, we want to reach new audiences, like I mentioned, mentioned Balenciaga at the top of the call, and also looking at existing audiences who are really naturally interested in the financial marketplace. And it seemed like such a natural fit. Jim's in our building all the time. We have a terrific relationship with CNBC. So it was a wonderful opportunity to just look at how we can expand that and having mad money set on the, on the floor has been just wonderful. That's brilliant. I love that. And then I also want to touch on this. I want to hear about this really cool partnership with a fashion house, uh, Balenci- Balenciaga. Is that pronounced right? Balenciaga. Balenciaga. Yeah. Right. I've I've been to their website and shopped around a little bit. I haven't purchased anything yet. It's a it's a beautiful high end brand. But you've you've, you've done this really cool partnership with this fashion house, and I want you to talk about this 2023 collection and kind of the inspiration behind that and what's happening because this is cool. Oh my goodness! I couldn't even possibly try and get into the the unbelievable mind of Demna and uh, and Balenciaga, but we were really excited to partner with them. So this was their first U.S. fashion show, and it was really important to Balenciaga that they had a New York institution. And while there's a lot of global aspects of the New York Stock Exchange, it's also, of course, very New York. It's on Wall Street. And so we held their 2023 spring line fashion show on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We've never done that before. It's amazing. Um, And again, this continues to sort of be those types of things that as we think about reaching new audiences and just changing maybe the the perception about the New York Stock Exchange, again, a lot of that perception is wonderful, but a lot of that, some people just might not know us or sort of know what we're about. And so it really opened a door for us in a way that has been really exciting, to be honest. And so having the models walking through the floor of the exchange, working with Balenciaga to really think so differently and so creatively around how to reimagine the floor of the New York Stock Exchange was such a treat. And we always say that sometimes we'll have partners come in and help us just kind of reimagine the floor. And that was, it was, it was a really once in a career opportunity. You can imagine I was living my best life that day. We absolutely (laughs) loved it. And Balenciaga was just such a joy to work with. We had a really great time working together with our team. That's awesome. They're such a, such a cool brand. I've been seeing them a lot more around in interesting, creative ways, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Let's end with this, uh, kind of this, I want you to speak to kind of two different audiences. The first one is going to be kind of those who are wanting to climb the ladder in marketing. And then the others, I'd love to hear from just your peers, right? I want to, what you would share with them. Stephanie, you have spent your career building brands and global enterprises. Like over two decades, you've led marketing, branding, PR across like various fintech and data companies. Like you're someone who can speak to this. What advice do you have for the first group of people, which are those who are trying to climb the marketing ladder? The first piece, and I say this all the time, is just try different aspects of marketing. Even if you don't have a formal job, 
you know, in maybe you're doing some product marketing and you don't, you know, you're not technically in events, volunteer to help out on some of the events or volunteer to help on social or shadow the comms team. I think trying different aspects of marketing was really successful for me because it opened my eyes to things that I just didn't know existed. And I think, you know, saying yes to, you know, to different opportunities is really important. You know, I think as marketers, we all like to pinch it and help each other. It's sort of a, the culture of oftentimes of those teams. You need help for an event or you need help with some social or help thinking through a big idea. Always raising your hand to be part of those, I think, creates a lot of exposure that you might not get otherwise. And this is for our fellow CMOs, VPs of marketing, you know, heads of marketing out there in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. We talked about it a lot on the show. Like look, We're in 2022. It's a much different world to be a marketing leader now. You, in my opinion, have to be so much more well-armed as a leader and a marketer in this day than ever before. You know, the role of the CMO is such an interesting role because you, you're interacting with every other executive leader. You're having to build trust across the aisle. You're having to work with finance and work with opera. I mean, you're working with tech and data. And I mean, you're engaging with everyone at the top of the organization. And then you also have to be a big part of the culture inside and, and the voice outside. You know, I look at you as someone who is successful as a marketing leader in the Fortune 500. What would you say to other CMOs that are climbing up there or that are your peers of like how you're able to be successful? How are you a successful CMO in 2022? I can't understate the importance of an internal network of having relationships and you touched on it, having relationships with every department inside the organization, because the reality is with marketing Sometimes you have believers. A lot of times you don't. A lot of times you'll have people in other parts of the organization who just think, oh, it's just an expense. It's not something that we need to do. It doesn't add value. And I think spending that time to create relationships and have support as you get, because you have to get people on the journey of why this is important and why people should care about this and why it matters. And you can't really do that just walking in with a deck and a presentation to a finance team or a technology team. And those oftentimes, you know, as we were working through this brand initiative and will continue to be finance and technology, I think I talked to those teams more than I talked to some of the other teams across the organization. And I, you can't underestimate those, those relationships. So I say, look, as marketers, we tend to have broad, expansive external networks. And I think that the same thing needs to be applied internally. Amazing. I love it. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on Marketing and Trends. This was an insightful conversation. Congrats to you and the whole team there. I mean, I know this is this this rebrand is exciting and where we're headed as a world is exciting. So thanks for being here. We love this and we enjoyed our time. Hope you did too. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It was good fun. You have eight seconds to capture the attention of your audience. Eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away, a swipe or a scroll to the next topic. This difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experience to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices make or break someone's experience with your brand. I talk to CMOs all the time within the Fortune 1000, and I know how important this is at the center of gravity for your entire digital experience. Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. 
from global crisis to hunger relief efforts to natural disaster preparation. The messages you deliver save lives. They also inform important decision-making and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and more precise and on a much larger scale than ever before. Brightspite Content Management System is already supporting some of the world's largest organizations to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing breaking news stories about its COVID-19 vaccine, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to audiences around the world. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you really care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.